You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hi, I'm Sandra Ruby, and I have been going to Free City for about two and a half, three years, and I'm part of the Spurly Somerville City Group that meets, yeah, meets on Tuesday night, six o'clock. Um, I also serve in Free City Kids as a weekly coordinator. And we're actually looking for volunteers right now. So if you have the ability or the desire to help serve the kids and bring up the next generation, um, look at Free City. There's plenty of opportunities to serve. Um, I will be reading Matthew 2, which is on page 757 of the Bible's New Year's Seats. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the name the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod king, the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes from the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Then they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he went to, Bethle- went to them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warmed in a dream not to return to Herod, they reparted to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for this child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. The voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, "'Rise and take the child and his mother "'and go to the land of Israel.' For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you for continuing to fulfill your promises. Um, As we settle into this semester, students and staff and faculty, that you would just give us peace and encouragement 
um, so that we can worship you and, and be close to you. Um, I pray for the sermon, that it would magnify who you are um, and give us clarity of the hand and strength that you have in fulfilling your promises. Um, I also pray for Central, um, just as they are also settling into the semester, that you would give them strength and peace um, to be with you and to be near you. Um, give them joy and the ability to worship you um, for who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you uh, are with us uh, for the first time, we are just starting um, a series through Matthew. And uh, buckle up, because we might be here for a little while. We'll take breaks. Um, but man, I actually, I really want to encourage you, just as we look at Matthew, Matthew is really intent on showing all that Jesus fulfills. And so you actually see that word in Matthew 16 times, uh, that he was the fulfillment, or he did this in order to fulfill. And compared to other gospels, I think Luke uses it twice, and Mark maybe uses it like eight or nine times. Matthew is very intent on painting a picture to show us that Jesus came to fill in what Israel never did and what we never can. Jesus came to fill in what you have that is lacking, that is not enough, no matter how hard we work or how hard we try or whatever we think. Jesus came to fulfill and fill in what is lacking. And without Jesus filling in what is lacking in your life, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so what we have, especially right here, is we have these pictures where, um, you know, Matthew is looking at the life of Jesus, and so he would have written this later in his life, you know, would have been telling the story over and over in evangelism and building up the church, would have told the story of Jesus and what he taught over and over, and probably wrote a lot of it down in smaller stories, but as his life was getting to the end, and he was thinking, man, we got to make sure we keep the historical Jesus, what he did, what he said, that we can transmit that to all people after we're gone and so that's when the gospel writers started to write down the life teaching death and resurrection of Jesus and so more than the other gospels what we see is he sees these pictures these things that happen in Jesus's life and he looks back in the old testament and he's like man that is just like that except Jesus did it perfectly or man this was done to fulfill this because we didn't do it right but here it's done right and so over and over he looks at these pictures and he tells us more and he points at Jesus and says hey this was fully fulfilled in Jesus, and it can be fully fulfilled in your life if you see Jesus as who he is, the son of God made man who lived a perfect life, died in your place and rose again. All that he fills in can be yours. You know, when I, I was thinking about this, um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess this up, and so if you're, you know, if you're a counselor or a, um, um, like, in a psychology class, um, have a lot of grace on me. Uh, but uh, the, the Rorschach test, and so I don't know, sometimes you just see this on TV, I don't know if it's used that much, but the, the Rorschach test is where you like take ink blots and you show them to people and they're supposed to tell you what they see. And it's gotta be, I mean, I've never, professionally this has never happened to me, and I, I don't know if I'd ever engage because it's gotta be the scariest thing because you see this ink blot and you tell, like if you're looking at clouds, you're like, oh, I see Daffy Duck, you know. And you 
tell what you see, and what you see is supposed to say a lot more about what's true inside of you and like made manifest and come out, and so it's got to be terrifying. And so I would go with butterfly every time. Like they would show me, I'm like, that's a butterfly, because really it looks like a demon, and I don't want to say demon, because the last four of it, demon, 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 demon butterfly, you know, and then it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That is inappropriate. I want to talk to your mom. You know, that is not okay. Like over and over, it's supposed to say something that you see that gives a fuller picture of truth. And so what we see in Matthew is he sees these things in the life of Jesus, and then he quotes, man, this has always been so. This was foretold. And so what we're going to look at, we're going to look at three pictures that we see here, three quotations that uh, Matthew does to say, hey, this is what Jesus came to fulfill. And so real fast, we see some places. We actually see a lot of geographical places that would have depicted the life and story of Israel itself. And so in Matthew 2, like look at some of these familiar places. In verses 1 through 3, you see Bethlehem the famous birthplace of King David, and the focus of so many prophecies about the coming Messiah. And then also there you see Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, where the king of Israel was enthroned and where the temple of Yahweh stood. But then the scene changes from these happy places to places that wouldn't have been happy moments in Israel's history. And so we, get, we see Jesus rushed off to Egypt, the place of, of Israel's enslavement, bitter enslavement. And then we see this obscure reference of Ramah. And so Ramah is a place close to Jerusalem where uh, it would be a noted of loss and brokenness. As the people of God were deported you know, out to, the, to Babylon, it would be the place that they were sorted and separated and some executed and some destined to stay and some sent away. And then we see this reference of Jesus of Nazareth, an unnamed place in Israel's history but a place pregnant with meaning about the nature of Jesus and his saving works done for us. And so all of these places familiar to Israel are telling us something about God's seemingly upside-down kingdom that was inaugurated in the person of Jesus, and it paints this picture of the miraculous do-over in the fulfillment of Christ that is made ours in the gospel. That Jesus stepped in to do over what we never could. And Matthew wants you to see that. And so we're going to point at, at three places in this text. And basically just look at it, kind of jump back, talk about how you know, the Hebrew people would have seen that and thought. And then point forward, to, this is what Jesus has done for us. And so those three places, really in verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to jump down to 16 to 18. You're going to see the place Ramah. Not mentioned in the first part, mentioned down in the latter part in verses 16 through 18. And we're going to talk about like kings and kingdoms and their struggle. So we're going to start with the place of Ramah. And, and then in verse 13 through 15, we see Egypt. Jesus and our exodus. And then in verses 19 through 23, we see Nazareth, Jesus and outcast. And, and so look with me here. So first, Rama. And so if we want to put that in a phrase, we might say it like this. Jesus is the promised return for sinners in exile. Jesus is the promised return for sinners in exile. And so Matthew 2 starts with this foreshadowing of two kingdoms that are quickly on a collision course uh, to come to an all-out fight. 
We see two kingdoms that are starting to collide with the announcement of King Jesus is now on the scene, and King Herod is very upset about it. We don't actually see the word Rama or the place Rama until we get down to like verse 16, but before, or I'm sorry, verse 18, but before we get there, like, look at what happens. Like, what happens is the Christmas stage. Like, the, the Christmas is starting, and we beat the Christmas stage. We beat before Target, and we beat before Halloween gets there. And if you decorate more for Halloween than you decorate for Christmas, then when you look at Rorschach cards, you probably see demons too, and so just like me. And so, like, like we get there where we see this very familiar story that maybe we don't look very deeply into, but we see this. And, and so look at verse 1. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. Like it doesn't say Herod the great. It doesn't say anything. It says Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. This is the beginning of like the Christmas story that we're so familiar with. This is continuing a theme that we started last week that Matthew is very, very concerned to show us. He's very concerned to show us a relationship that Jesus has with King David of old. Like if you remember, we looked at, like look back at Matthew 1.1. In Matthew 1.1, we get three titles that we unpacked last week. And so three titles really, really fast. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's the first title. Son of David, that's the second title. And then the son of Abraham, that's the third title. And so just really fast, just to bring this, because if you, you know, Ethan walked through with just, just with great grace, walking through to show how much David is mentioned and what all of this means, and then had this incredible phrase where he says, man, we see these people in the family line of God, it's an indication of the family that God will make, and there is hope for you and I. But the first, it says, Jesus is the Christ. It means he is the Messiah. From Genesis 3.15 on, after our sin, like sin entered in chapter 3 of the very first book, and we are talking about how to deal with sin and to be reconnected with God from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the end of Revelation. That should tell you something. Sin is not easy to deal with. The vast majority of the Bible, like within the bookends, is talking about setting up a system that we might see how God's going to deal with it through all the shadows and all the pointers in the text that we see in the Old Testament, pointing with one consistent theme that there is coming a Messiah, and we find out that his name is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. But the, the, the second phrase, so Jesus, the Messiah, then it says Jesus, the son of David, throughout the Old Testament, like this promise persisted and slowly moved center stage that there would come a Messiah figure for us who would reconnect us to God and he would be connected to King David, but his kingdom would last forever and ever. And so we see this picture of king. And, and so real fast, it'll be up on the screen, but just, just a little taste of it. Like Isaiah 9, it says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. If you ever heard Amy Grant sing, you're like singing it in your heart right now. Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David. Or, or Isaiah 11, 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, 
That, that's the father of King David, a branch from his roots. Or Jeremiah 23, 5, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. Or the place, how we get to just a second to Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth uh, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Like th these are just some uh, uh, sampling of the, the promises of a king like David who would have a forever reign, who would come, that explodes on the scene in the Christmas story. From the line of David, born in Bethlehem, the city of David, a king shall come with a forever reign. Jesus the Messiah the rightful promised king of Israel. But then it says son of Abraham. Son of Abraham, like the origins of Jesus is not only wrapped around David's name, but also the promise to Abraham. That promise always extended beyond the bloodlines of Israel. Jesus is the son of Abraham, who's the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to make a people as numerous as the stars from every nation, to be a set-apart people, and this would come to pass. In a like Isaac sacrificial death. From Genesis 3.15, we start to get this picture that God was going to send someone to be a Messiah from the line of David for an ever kingdom that would last forever and ever, and it would fulfill the promise that God would pull people from all over the nations to be in his family. Jesus the Messiah, the rightful king of God's people who extends his reign to all who receive the promise. Like he's building something. Matthew is so careful to tell us that a forever king is coming from the line of David through the city of Bethlehem. But here is the problem. Herod is claiming to be king and two kings don't work. So King Jesus' kingdom is a threat to King Herod's kingdom. And so look at verse 1. It moves on. It says this. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Like, th this is the part that is really well known. And so, I mean, this is the part like you're walking around in stores and you might hear Christmas music around Christmas time where you might hear this song. Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Now, now the next, next line says peace on earth and mercy mild, but that has nothing to look like the next scene in this, in this story. Like it, we, we, we hear that song and we just kind of keep walking and we don't really think about Jesus came to be king, but Herod thought about it a lot. Herod felt a threat about this new king because there can't be two kingdoms. And so, you know, if you were born in the 1900s, you might remember these things called malls. And so malls were these giant buildings, and they had, like, department stores and a food court and, like, random massage chairs kind of sprinkled out and sunglass huts. And, and, like, you might be walking around as decorated for Christmas, and you would hear that song in the background. And they don't exist anymore because of Amazon, and so you have to play it for yourself while you're shopping online. But, like, this was the phenomenon. We hear the song, and we just are indifferent Sure, Jesus came to be king. Herod was not 
indifferent. Herod wasn't indifferent at all. Like, look at verse 3. It says, when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled. And it wasn't just him. He was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. Like, this is the moment in the story where the, the music and the background gets eerie. And things start to slow down. It's foreshadowing, telling us that Herod is not okay with a bunch of noblemen coming from other countries, following a celestial sign in the sky, bringing gifts and saying, we want to worship him. King Herod is very aware that if there's another king, only one king can exist and reign on the throne. King Herod is very aware like i mean if you even think about what that might have looked like 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 i mean th these wise men probably coming from babylon i mean no one really knows i think coming from babylon because i i think how they got the prophecies in their astrology books was because when daniel was in captivity in babylon he was in charge of the wise men and the astrologers i think god used him and prophesied and put something in there that a king of the jews would rise up and a celestial event would show so god uses people wherever he places them to bring about stories we could never even dream about and so there they arrive, and they say, man, we followed this celestial event because there is a baby boy born king of Israel. And this is like way more impressive than your little gender reveal where you put a balloon, like attach it to your dog, who your dog doesn't even know that is about to become a second-class citizen in the home. I mean, doesn't even know it. And you pop it, you're like, oh, it's a girl. I mean, you don't even, it's not, you don't even compare. A celestial event saying, the king is here. And this delegation, probably far more than three, it's just, you know, when we, I mean, how many wise men can you have in the nativity scene? And you just need three to carry gold, frankincense and myrrh, you know what I mean? And so probably this huge delegation coming in to say, the king is here. And that troubles the kingdom that's already established. Like, we'll just skip through it, but look because these next verses are really familiar. In verse four, Herod summons the scribes to find out where the promised king of Israel was to be born. In verses five through six, the scribes know. that they, they quote, we just looked at Micah 5.2, they quote Micah 5.2 through four right away. Like, I mean, it is like that Jeopardy, final Jeopardy moment where they just nail it, and then they just high five. And so they say, yes, the king is supposed to be in Bethlehem. And they don't go look. Like, they, they get it right. They have the information, but it has no transformation upon their day or no transformation in their heart. You see, the scriptures are dangerous to you if they're only intellectual for you. They don't go look. The scribes who know the scriptures just kind of like, yeah, Bethlehem, and then move on. And then we have, you know, what happens in verses 7 through 9. Herod instructs the wise men to search for him in Bethlehem, and then, like, the that the, you know, the undertone music would come back and he says this, and when you find him, come back so that I might go kill him. I mean, worship him. And so the intent starts to come out. The song we sing at Christmas declares Jesus to be king and then it talks of peace on earth and mercy mild, but the following scenes are of malintent, deception, narrow escape and mass murder. Because King Herod knew there can only be one king. Like, if we look at verse 10, 
what we see is, you know, we see that the, the wise men, they find Jesus, they fall down in joyful worship, and they give their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there's a lot written about these things that might be true or might not be true. You know, gold could point to kings, uh, Jesus' kingship, and frankincense could point to his divinity because it was used as incense in a lot of worship. And, and myrrh could point to his coming death and burial. And I would just say maybe, I mean probably, I, I don't know, but they're really, really expensive. And these people came from a long way following some sort of celestial event and they fall down and worship and see him as the true king and they don't know all of the prophecies but they know enough that this king has arrived and it demands something of me see jesus's kingdom is a threat to king herod's kingdom and king herod is willing to do almost anything to keep his rule and so what happens if you look in verse 12 is the the wise men are warned don't go tell king herod he was lying to you and so then verse 16 then herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all of that region who were two years old or older or younger or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Based on the the population of Bethlehem in the first century, that probably was 20 to 30 baby boys of age two and below. Like, this is horrible. This is the extent that, that kings will go to resist the reign of another king, of King Jesus. Herod ordered the death of 20 to 30 baby boys because he didn't want to lose control. He wanted to keep his power. All of us have a tiny King Herod in our heart that wants to stay on the throne. Yeah, I've talked about little tiny people in our hearts a lot. Like usually I talk about a little tiny lawyer that just says, I object, you know. And, and, but a tiny King Herod that wants to maintain rule over all the things of our life. And when Jesus enters in and starts to take dominion over other areas of our life, we resist. You know, we, we get questions, um, and they're actually like little King Herod questions it's just they sound different. We, we get questions about like this, like, hey, if I come to church or if I become a Christian, do I have to vote a certain way or do I have to stop sleeping or living with my girlfriend or boyfriend? And all of these type questions indicate that there is a threat by a new coming king that I'm going to lose some sort of sovereign reign over my life and choices, that I'm going to lose how I engage in relationships. It has to be subject to Jesus. Or I'm going to lose how I think about money and my ambitions because it has to be subject subject to Jesus, or I'm going to lose what I do with my life and where I spend my money and what I do. Like all of these things are sovereign questions. Will I maintain control or is Jesus actually king? Do you know what this means? This means none of us, when we're investigating the claims of Christ, none of us are like really objective. Like, none of us are like, man, let's just see what happens. You know, the weight of the universe. Let's just figure it out. All of us have a little bit of a pull to say, I want to maintain control. And if we're honest, and if you're here, and you're like, man, I just don't know about Jesus. Like, I just want to draw this, because this is true in my heart, too. There is a pull, and there is a draw, where I don't want the lordship of Jesus to cover all things. There is a resistance. 
We don't start in a neutral place of like, well, let's see what happens. We start with a, I don't want it to be true because two kingdoms can't stand. And so then this is where we get where Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31, 15, talks about Ramah. Look at verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentations. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This, this quote is kind of elusive. Ramah was the place that after Jerusalem fell to Babylon, the exiles were gathered and sorted out. It was at Ramah that some were executed because they couldn't make the trip or they were deemed dangerous. It was at Ramah that some were sent off to Babylon to, to serve in different capacities. It was at Ramah that some like Jeremiah were left behind because they weren't seen as a threat and they didn't want to kill them. It was at Ramah that families and lives were torn apart. And it was at Ramah that we see this picture. Actually, Jeremiah 31, a very hopeful a very, very hopeful chapter, but the darkest part of night where the promise comes, it was at Ramah that it would say, a promise is coming to bring you back. Your exile is over. See, Jeremiah regarded Rachel as a symbolic matriarch of God's people. Like, she's not weeping for her own children, but she's weeping for her nation that's been decimated. And in chapter 31, it is telling God's people in the darkest hour of their existence that God has not forgotten them, that God will bring them back, that God will establish a forever promise, a better promise. And, and I, I think Matthew quotes this as a way to say, do you see the resistance to King Jesus? Yes, this moment is awful and this moment is dark, but don't miss the picture. Just like Rama was full of pain, it was also the recommitment of our saving hope. I think Matthew includes Rama here to say, the coming of Jesus is the ultimate end of our exile from God. The promise of God is here in the flesh. Jesus is our saving hope. He is the promised Messiah. Jesus is king. And he's saying, in this dark moment is the struggle of kingdom versus kingdom. And so the first picture at Ramah, King Jesus becomes our promised return from exile. Do you feel far away? But like exile for, for the Israel people would not be like this, like just kind of, you know, inside feeling of being far. It is being taken away from everything you love. A, a sense inside of you, of, I don't belong where I am. I was made to live somewhere else. Does that describe you at all? A sense among the laughter of your friends, a sense of the workings of your life, a sense of, I don't know if I belong. There is an exilement of the soul that Jesus says, I came to bring you back because you were made to live before the face of God and I'm the only way back. That's why Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus our promised return from exile. Second, and two and three are much faster. Two or three are much, much, much faster. Second, Egypt. Jesus is our exodus from sin's enslavement. Egypt reminds us of God's people that where they were enslaved in a place of bitterness. And it's out of our enslavement 
we find a way. Jesus is the ultimate deliverance. Look at verse 13. In, in verse 13, it says this. Now, when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the children and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, like some of you, like if you look at the scriptures, you might see a little letter or a little number, and that has a, uh, it has a subscript, you know, that, that shows where we're quoting this. And so, you know, some of you studious types, you know, careful theologians, you love to look those things up, and you love to see how it ties together. And maybe one time you were reading, you know, right here in Matthew 2, and you saw that, and you said, oh my goodness, this was to fulfill what the prophet had spoken out of Egypt. I called my son. And so you flipped back to Hosea 11.1, 1, and you read it, and you looked at it, and then you flipped back to Matthew 2, and you read it again to make sure you got it right. And then you flipped back to Hosea 11.1, 1, and you're like, man, it doesn't sound like a prophecy. Like, this is weird. Like, you're like, I was so careful to look this up, and I don't understand it. And you're the super careful type. You're like, you're like the dishwasher reloader. Like, you know that if the dishwasher is loaded wrong, the whole universe could spin out of control. So you've been saving your family or your roommates from utter destruction, and they don't understand what you're doing from them because you're careful, and you look this up. And so you might get to Hosea 11.1 and say, I... I'm not for sure if this is a prophecy at all. And, and so if you look back at this, it says the prophet, like the prophet is Hosea, and he's recalling how God through Moses called Israel out of their enslavement back into, out of their enslavement in Egypt back to the promised land. And so Matthew is looking through Hosea 11.1, 1, back to the Exodus, Exodus, seeing that the new beginning of Israel as a nation was led by God, and he sees a similar pattern in Jesus. And so some prophecies are like prophecies, this is what is going to happen exactly, and some prophecies are more like a type. They're more like a picture of what the Messiah would be like and how he would embody what we always failed. And so listen to John Stott, how he explains this. And so he goes beyond this picture, but he explains it like this. As Israel was oppressed in Egypt under the despotic rule of Pharaoh, Pharaoh, so the infant Jesus became a refugee in Egypt under the despotic rule of Herod. As Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, so Jesus passed through the waters of John's baptism in the river of Jordan. As Israel was tested in the wilderness of Zion for 40 years, so Jesus was tested in the wilderness of Judea for 40 days. And as Moses from Mount Sinai gave Israel the law, so Jesus from the Mount of Beatitudes gave his disciples the true interpretation and amplification of the law. Over and over, we see Matthew make these kinds of portraits of Jesus as a new and better fill-in-the-blank. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we know and all that we see. And he came to be king. And so Matthew says this is the start of a preordained redemptive pattern 
Matthew records Jesus, Mary, and Joseph coming back from Egypt and sees God's people in the great exodus from slavery. And he sees Jesus' baptism and God is calling Jesus my beloved son in Matthew 3, 17. And then he sees God calling Israel his son in Hosea and he starts to put them together. Matthew looks at Israel's history in the Old Testament and he sees it as a shadow or a pointer or a type that is pointing to our story perfected in the person of Jesus. Matthew points to Hosea 11.1 1, to say Jesus has come to fulfill all that we left undone and incomplete. The truth of the gospel is forgiveness can only be accomplished when perfect obedience fills in what you lack. Israel came out of their bondage in Egypt full of hope full of singing. If you remember when they crossed the Red Sea, Miriam starts to sing a song and they all start to dance and they're hopeful. They have strong belief. They're excited about what God has done, a new horizon. They're now a nation again, walking through the desert to find a new place, a place where they belong, where they always knew that they belong, but they never saw. They come out with song in their heart, but they also come out with sin in their heart. And over and over they fail the test and they fail the test. And they probably have these like pep talks, like you can do it. And like, man, we can do it. We won't complain about the manna. Man, manna again? Over and over. And so Matthew sees this and he says, man, just as Israel came out of their bondage, out of Egypt, man, we see Jesus coming out of Egypt, but it's altogether different. At Ramah, Jesus became our promised return from exile. At Egypt, Jesus made a way out of bondage. And now let's deal with Nazareth. Jesus is God's extended peace to outcast sinners. Look at verse 19. In verse 19, it says this. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child, his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. Now listen, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now if you're the careful type and you see this, what was spoken by the prophets might be called Nazarene, and then you look down at the bottom of your Bible and there's really no notation, or sometimes there's several notations, and none of those notations say anything about Nazareth or Nazarene or anything like that. Like you start to think, man, what does this mean? And I think that the key is that it doesn't say prophet, but it says prophet. Like, and when I say I think, the books that I read, they think. And so it doesn't say prophet, it it says prophets. And so all the prophets point in this direction, but the problem is there's nowhere in the Old Testament that uses the term Nazareth. 
That's never mentioned like as a place. And so all the prophets are pointing in the same general direction of whatever is happening with Jesus in Nazareth as he's coming out from that. Whatever he carries, they're all saying, this is the nature of what the Messiah will do for us. And so all the prophets point. And I just want to point out two ideas. The, the, the first idea, the branch of David. And so earlier we quoted uh, Isaiah 11.1 1, in two different places, and we saw this word branch, where it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's the father of David, and a branch, which the word there is nezer, a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And so most likely, we don't know this, but Nazareth was nezereth. And so you just added that on. And so it's like the city of the branch. And so it's bridging. Yes, he was born in the city of David, but he came as the branch of God. And like an olive branch symbolizes peace. From this, from God would grow a peace that would bear fruit. Jesus is the extended peace of God that branched from the dead stump of David. Jesus is the branch. The second thing I think it points to is Jesus came to include those that you don't think have a chance of being included. And so it's mixed with this. Matthew points out that Nazareth is located in the district of Galilee. Galilee was a region mixed with, with Jews and Gentiles and with its ethnic diversity, like Galilee, especially Nazareth, was kind of looked down as backwoods or hick or like, man, very uncultured. And this is what you experience when you ask people, you know, like they're from Kansas, like, well, where are you from Kansas? And they won't tell you the name of their hometown because they know you don't know where it is. And so then they, they, they go to like the next biggest town. And I mean, that ain't very big either. And so it's like, man, like, listen, like, we, we have it. This is what you might experience. Like the district of Galilee would be a place that people are like, oh, you know, from Galilee. I mean, that would be a place like that. They would have their own accent. That's why like, you know, at the temptation, or I'm sorry, at the, uh, at the execution of Jesus, when they're talking to like Peter, and they're like, hey, wait a minute, weren't you with, weren't you with Jesus? And he's like, no, man, I, I don't know that guy. And like, no, wait a minute, you're a Galilean. Everywhere you go, the way you talk tells people where you're from. Like, have you ever noticed that if someone is explaining something and they have a British accent, you just believe it's true? Like, you're just like, oh, man, that's got to be true. And have you noticed that you could be like an astrophysicist, but if you have a southern accent, you're like, I don't know. I mean, I just, <laughs> I don't know. Like, 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 these things carry something with us. Because in our world, there's pecking orders. There's the ins and there's the outs. There's the Ivy League schools and there's the state schools. I mean, in our world, we have resumes and reference letters. And you want to be among these people and these people are accepted and these people aren't accepted. And Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem. He didn't even go back to Bethlehem. He came from the district of Galilee that he would be known as Jesus of Nazareth. You see, if you remember... When Philip went and told Nathaniel, hey, I think we found the Messiah. And Nathaniel was like, wow, tell us who. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. Like, do you remember what Nathaniel said? He didn't be like, oh, I thought maybe that would be right. That's not what he said at all. Jesus of Nazareth. What good could ever come out of Nazareth? 
And, and Philip, he didn't even try to like defend him. He's like, just come meet him. I know he talks weird. Just come meet him. I think when he says all the prophets were pointing in this direction but never mentioned Nazareth, I think he was combining like the place of the branch that would extend peace to the outermost. And so then we enter and we see the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus is he's hanging out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes, all the people that the religious people thought they're all, they're too far gone. And so then as a kind of a propaganda stunt to try to hurt the ministry of Jesus, they come up with the title, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. And it becomes this cherished title for the hope of salvation for every one of us that no matter how far gone you feel or where you started, the foot of the cross is level and it's available for everyone who repents and says, Jesus is Lord. So we get promises like this. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. Lord, as we um, think about the pictures that Matthew is tying together to say, when you see Jesus and when you say things in his life, see more than just locations, see something deeper of him fulfilling everything that was left undone. Everything that was left undone. Or, or when we see a picture of, man, he was known as Jesus of Nazareth, and people would have judged him and scoffed because of where he came from. But he is our escape from exilement. He is our exodus. He is our way back to God. But we just want to ask this question. When you see Jesus, what do you see? Because what we see in the very first lines of the Christmas story is, show us where the king is. The king has been born. And two kingdoms can't exist. Lord, we just need help. Lord, there are places in my heart that I just need to surrender more deeply to your reign and your control. And there's something in me like a little King Herod that wants to resist because I'm afraid to lose control. But it is ridiculous. Why would I resist the reign and control of the God of the universe who left the courts of heaven to be born in lowly places, to suffer and die in my place, to bear the scars for all of eternity upon his wrist and his side? Why would I not trust that reign in my life? And yet there's something that resists. Every week we take communion and a great picture of communion is just bringing what we have to the table and be reminded that his body was broken for that and his blood was shed for that. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll see directions for communion up on the screen. Come when you're ready.